Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Jenny Seibel. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Indicator, and I'm so happy to be here with you this morning. Um, if you've been with us the past few weeks of Advent, we have been in some apocalyptic texts, which are really wonderful and informative. Um, but if you are ready for baby Jesus, he comes to us today. Um, so if you have Bibles, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18, read to the end of the chapter. And if you don't, we'll have it on the screen for you. This is what the Bible says about the birth of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. We ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear this text. Um, Help us to see new things and hear new things, Lord a text that has become very familiar to so many of us. And yet it is the beginning of the thing that you are doing in the world with your son through his body. We thank you for the gift of being able to think about him as a baby, what it means for us that you became one of us. Help us to think deep thoughts about this passage, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So like we said, we're rounding out the season of Advent. This is our last Sunday um, in the season of Advent, and we're so glad that you could be with us to talk about the incarnation. We're going to think about what it means that God became a human, Um, and not just a human, not that he just appeared here as a man and and got baptized, as the Gospel of Mark might have you believe, that he just kind of walked into the River Jordan, Um, but that he actually came as a baby. It was born of a woman, um, and this is the way that God's journey began, just like all of us. It's easy to think about this story as just that, a story. We've all, if you've been around the church for any number of years, uh, this is probably a very familiar story to you. So much so that it is kind of legendary and it loses its like realness. Um, And yet I think the invitation for us today is to remember that these are real people that Jesus really became a person, that he really had parents, you know, that had to make hard decisions on behalf of their child. Um, If you are a parent, you know what this is like. If you have parents, you know what this is like. Um, So this is the invitation for us today, is to think about what the incarnation really means, to step into these people's shoes and think, these are real people that I'm asked to identify with, to look to as models of the faith. God came into the world and was subject to all the vulnerabilities that you and I are subject to. Um, and one of them being, his parents had the option to, to not hold up their end of the bargain. 
And that is the story for so many of us. And what I love about this story, and we also get to see Mary's story in Luke, is that we get both sides, you know? We get Joseph and we get Mary. And we get to see what it takes to bring the Son of, Jesus, the Son of God into the world. Um, that God needed both of these people to be on board to do the thing. So Joseph Frez is a model of faith, and we're going to look at that today, what it looks like for him to say yes to God. Joseph's story only comes around once every three years in the lectionary. We only get to hear the story once every three years from the pulpit. And so we would do very well today to think about this man and the choices that he made on behalf of God and look to him and see how we can model after him. Um, So first we're going to step into Joseph's shoes. We're going to look at what his choices were like, what his world was like, and we're going to try and figure out what God might be saying through his life. Um, then we're going to step into Jesus' shoes. I think this is something that God asks us to do when we're reading the Bible and wants us to do it more often than we're comfortable doing. We're kind of like, well, that's Jesus, so I'm never going to put myself in his place. Um, And yet, as the child of God, he was, and the children of God, we are. I think God is asking us to to step into his shoes more often than we do. So we're going to do that, and we're going to look at God's role in his life, what God says about his identity, and what that might mean for us. So first of all, it's important to um, come to an understanding about the cultural context in which we are in. This, this text uses some confusing language about engagement and married and husband and those kinds of things. So just to put us in this place in the world. Um, so Joseph and Mary are engaged, the text says, but really they are fully married. They um, have made this first step of marriage. Uh, it's complete. They have made the covenant with one another in the presence of witnesses. Like they are husband and wife, it's been declared. Um, however, there is a second part to this marriage that would happen in this, in this time where the woman leaves the father and mother's house, comes out in this like grand processional and like parades through the streets, and she goes in to live with her husband for the very first time forever and ever. Amen. And um, so that is the part that hasn't happened yet. That's the kind of in-between space that we're entering into here. So the covenant has been made. The only way out of this thing now at this point is death or divorce. One of the culturally um, acceptable reasons for divorce during this time is infidelity, in particular infidelity on the woman's part, which in Joseph's eyes is what has happened here. When we read this text and we like put on our first century ears and we read this first part, um, there's something in it that's supposed to like make us giggle a little bit and scandalize us at the same time. So what the text says is this, Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. So this is you perking up your ears, right? When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child. So this is the thing that's supposed to make you as a listener be like, scandalous. Um, So she's found to be with child, and then we're led into the part of the story that Joseph doesn't yet know, which is what? By the Holy Spirit. So Joseph is having to make a very difficult decision The text says he is a righteous man. And so he does what is actually not just the socially acceptable thing, but the morally right thing to do, which is divorce this woman, which is hard for us to hear. But when we put ourselves in this time and place, it was the right thing. Here's how we know Joseph is different, though. This kind of divorce because of infidelity would have been a publicly shaming event, especially if it's a woman. This would have been in the same way like she's paraded out from her parents' house when it's time to be married. Um, This would have been the same except for her disgrace. 
And so what Joseph does is he says, I'm going to do it as quietly as possible. And we don't really know what that means. But what we do know is that he was seeking for her dignity to be upheld as much as he could. So he's in a very precarious situation. He's under pressure, we would say. He's in a situation where it's not just like, can I get out of this thing unscathed, but it's like, how scathed will I be? Which is, I think, a situation that we've all been in at least once or twice in our lives. Mary, his, his wife, looks like she has slept with someone else. And so he has to make the hard decision to either divorce her or marry her in shame because it also might look like he slept with her. So he is entering into a space where he's experiencing grief, seeming injustice. It looks like an unjust thing has been done against him by this woman that he married. He's also entering into a situation of social pressure and even maybe facing like moral failure from the people around him, from the way that it looks. And yet in spite of all these things, because Joseph is a good man, a righteous man, and a man who knows God, he is able to approach this situation that would normally make someone reactive and anxious, and he looks at it, and he does the right thing, and he gives compassion to the person who's done the unjust thing against him. Of course this was Jesus' dad, right? That's exactly what Jesus does throughout his whole life. He is good. He upholds the law. He does all that his father asks of him, and he's also willing to deviate and go the compassionate route when it's necessary. To look into the face of the one who does the injustice against you and say, I'm going to do this to your very best in this situation. Of course, this was Jesus' father. Here's something we know about God. God tests people. We see it all the time in the Bible. The Bible loves to use that word, test. Um, It is something that we are not very comfortable with, but um, we hear a lot, not just in church. This is one of those things that, like, when we think about cultural Christianity, we think about um, God being someone who tests people, right? It's like, it's just kind of in our cultural consciousness. The way we think about God testing people, and I think the reason we don't like the idea of it, is because when we talk about God testing people, we think of it as a test, as this like pass-fail situation, right? As like God's testing you to see if you are good or to see if you are bad, to see if you are in or to see if you are out. And I don't think that's true. Um, Go read about Abraham and Isaac. This is one of those opportunities. So tests are less about being in or out or good or bad. And I think that's revealed in this situation with Joseph. God's tests are more about seeing how far we're willing to go with him. Just like a really good parent watches their child mature and wants to give them more and more responsibility as they age and mature. God wants to do the same thing with us with our spiritual responsibility. He wants to cooperate with us and give us things allow us to participate in the work of bringing his son into the world. And he gives us opportunities to stand in pressurized situations and say yes to him, to be obedient. And it's then that we can be given more and more opportunities to work with him and bring his son into the world. Jesus even said, it was, if you want to be a part of this, you're going to experience persecution. It's God's graciousness that brings us to smaller moments that allow us to say yes to God before bringing us into deeper and harder places. 
Joseph is an example of what it looks like to live your life in a way where God will use your faithfulness to bring his purposes into a reality. God risked on Joseph and Mary. They had every opportunity to say no or to respond badly. And they didn't. It was a really good risk he took. And I think God is asking me and you to become the kinds of people who are good risks. The kind of people who are solid and have grit and, as C.S. Lewis would say, bend the blades of grass, you know. God was going to hand his son over to this man. And he needed to be a good man, a man that followed the law, and also a man that knew compassion in his bones. The invitation for us is to live our lives in a way where God can use us too to bring his son into the world. I'm so thankful for this story and for Joseph um, as an opportunity for us to see what it looks like to take on maybe the greatest responsibility anyone's ever taken on and also to know that like that is our responsibility as well to bring Jesus into the world, into our families, into our workplaces. All right, I'm going to shift gears. We're going to put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. We're going to look at just a singular moment that happens in this text. This is one of those places in the Bible where, you know, you can read like two or three words and it changes the foundations of your entire life. I think a moment like that happens in this text. So, um, but before we go there, I want to say that Mary... Um, as the woman that God chose to be Jesus' mother, says a lot about who God wanted Jesus to be. So because Mary was lower class, we would say, we know this from the kind of offering that she brings to the temple when she takes Jesus to the temple in Luke. Um, she She was poor. She was oppressed. She was on like the margins of society. This tells us that God wanted Jesus to be in solidarity with those people, with people who are poor, oppressed, and on the margins by his mother being that as well. I think God is saying a similar thing about Joseph. He wants to tell us who Jesus is going to be by who Joseph is. So we're going to look at that in this text. So what does the angel of the Lord say to Joseph? What is it in the very beginning? You have your Bibles out, some of you, or at least your phones. Joseph, then what? Son of David, which is a really important line in this text. The only other person in the New Testament who gets called the son of David is who? Jesus. And yet we have this moment here where the angel of the Lord calls Joseph this. What does this mean? Who was David? David was king. He was king over Israel long before Joseph was around. Um, He was a really good king, and he was a king at a time when Israel desperately needed a king. And he finally came. He brought the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, into one singular place. He brought peace, sustainability to the people of Israel. And it was such a good thing that God made a promise to David that eventually, out of his bloodline, would come someone who is going to come and be king, like take the, the key to David's house, his throne. And he was going to be king, and he was going to be king forever and ever. He makes a covenant with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is what God says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, 
who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A king would come from David's own body, it says. Um, This king would not just be king over all Israel, he would be king forever, and he would be a Messiah king. He would be the one who saves the people and then reigns over them, and there would be peace and prosperity forever and ever. Here's the problem. What was Jesus' genetic makeup? It was Mary and the Holy Spirit. I'm a youth pastor. You have to give me answers. You know, When I pause, it's so that you'll answer. Jesus was not a blood relative of Joseph nor David. Jesus was adopted into the royal bloodline, adopted into David's family. In the first century, it's the legal father's um, job to name a child. What happens when you name a child is it means you are the father, which is a very interesting thing. So what does the angel of the Lord, the two things, what does the angel tell Joseph to do? To take Mary as his wife and to name the baby Jesus. Joseph adopts Jesus by naming him, giving him the name that means he's the Messiah of the people. So I think this says something about who God is. Here's the point. The fact that Jesus wasn't genetically related to Joseph or David doesn't illegitimize Jesus' right to the throne. Rather, it legitimizes the power of God to speak over all that would disqualify Jesus and call him out of the person that he was meant to be. I believe what's being said about Jesus here is also true for us. That in the same way that through Mary, Jesus comes into solidarity with all those who find themselves on the margins, on the outside. That through Joseph, Jesus finds him in solidarity with everyone who just doesn't make the cut. Who doesn't find themselves worthy of the thing. Who isn't on the inside. You and me. This is what this moment is saying to us. All the things in the world that would make claims to your identity, that would call out something in you that is untrue, all of those things spiritually, very, in a very real way in this moment, are spiritually loosened. And what is bound by Joseph and Jesus in this moment is that all the things that would call you into being a child of God are bound in heaven. That this is your core identity. This is who you are. You're a child of God. You are grafted in, adopted, claimed. Adoption is something that claims you. Joseph claims Jesus in this moment. We are claimed by God and brought into his family. And not just a place to belong, but a place to be called into the people that we were always meant to be. Here's what I love about this text. God just doesn't just say that adoption is good. The New Testament is filled with, um, Paul loves to talk about adoption. It's like the song that plays in the background of the New Testament. You are adopted into the family of God. We are brothers and sisters. There's a new kind of family happening here, right? Um, God doesn't just call it good, but he does it himself. The son of God is adopted into this thing. You cannot ever be an outsider again and say, I can't make my way in because you are in. There are no outsiders in the family of God, and that's everyone. 
And all of this happened, all of this claiming, all of this adopting things, all of these happened before Jesus was conscious of it. This is where we have to like expand our brains a little bit to think about the incarnation and what it means that God became a baby, you know? I don't think God was a tiny, squishy little newborn thinking, I can't wait to save the world. I think he was thinking what every baby thinks, which is absolutely nothing. He is claimed before he has any opportunity to earn it or ask for it or refuse it. And the same is true for you and for me. We have been claimed by God before we were conscious of it. Before we had the opportunity to earn it or choose it or refuse it. So this speaks a couple of truths to us today. Number one being... We have been claimed by a God who calls himself our Father. And our job in life as Christians is to ask the Holy Spirit to expand our understanding of this, that God is our Father. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is that we are ever more conscious of the fact that we live in a world where God is our Father and that he has claimed us, that he has called us his own. This is a radical way to live. This is how we live in a world where we really believe things are going to turn out okay, is that God is our Father, and that we really believe that. Number two, my core identity is not that I am a Christian. It's not in any decision that I have made myself. My core identity is that, first and foremost, the truest thing about me is that I'm a child of God. Because before I could make any claim to God, he claimed me. We achieve and we earn and the background of our life becomes about what we are doing for God. As a person in this room, if you're a Christian, so much about how you feel about God is how much you are doing for God, right? How close you feel to God has so much to do with how you are earning it. Even though we wouldn't say that out loud or think it consciously, it's just how we understand the thing. Um, one of the ways in which I, th- I think about this in my own life is, is that um, God is meant to be the sun, right, in the solar system of our life. God is meant to be the sun, and everything's supposed to revolve around God, and God is the center, and everything is as it should be. And in fact, the way I often live in my own life, and probably you as well, is that I am the sun, But because I'm a really good Christian, I try to get God to be the planet that orbits closest to me, right? It's still me in the center of the thing. And so we live this way, and before we know it, we have made a pretty little box for God to live in, and we really, really like it, and we take it everywhere we go, and then when something happens in our lives that doesn't quite fit into that box, we don't know what to do. Someone dies, someone leaves you, some great, horrible grief happens in your life, and we don't know. It doesn't fit in the box anymore. And we come to a place where we don't know what to do with it. Knowing that God has claimed us should allow us to rest and release control 
as we talked about earlier with Joseph, Joseph was obedient, saying yes to God and acting out in the fruit of your life in this way, acting out and saying yes to God and coming to circumstances where you are doing for God is most certainly a part of it. But that can't be the reason for your closeness to God. The reason first and foremost is that he has done a thing for you. He has claimed you. When we go into Christmas Day, we wake up on that morning and we know, as we've been waiting and waiting for him, that we have not earned that moment. That it was chosen before we could do anything to earn it. You are God's. And you belong to him. God is working before we are working. Even in Jesus' own life. And this is how I know it's true for you and for me. Because it was true for his son. It's true for you and me. I think this is what God is saying to us. Um, I want to read from this covenant that God made with David, which is one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible. It's also really fun to read the words of God out loud. Um, when we read them f- just from the text ourselves and don't hear them out loud, it's like there's something that happens when you hear God, God's words spoken to someone out loud spoken to you, you know? We build this thing for God. We think that we are earning our keep with him. And I think so did David. So King David finally makes it into Jerusalem and they built him this giant, beautiful palace that he's living in and lounging in. And it's made of cedar, which my husband is a carpenter and cedar's the best. It's the most beautiful. So he's living in this beautiful palace and he is looking outside the window and what does he see? Where is God? In a tent outside. And he's like looking around in his palace and then he's looking around at God in the tent and he's like, something is wrong here. I would like to make God a house. So he resolves to do this. I'm going to make God a beautiful house, better than mine. And here's what God says to David. Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with anyone saying... Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, and I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. And I will give you rest. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. If you're able, would you stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.